The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I get asked a lot, how did you first get hooked on uh, China? And let me just digress just for uh, a minute and, and give you a sense of really what brought me to the table to write a book uh, like this. For most of my Wall Street career, and I will be the first to admit now I'm um, in my post-Wall Street career, someone described me as a recovering Wall Street professional. Um, I, I focused a, a lot on the U.S. and uh, the global economy. And as the chief economist for Morgan Stanley uh, in the 90s and for most of the 2000s, we had an extraordinarily talented global economics team. There, there are polls that uh, investors participate in to rank uh, teams of analysts and economists around the world. And I'm proud to say in the late 90s, we were ranked as the number one global economics team in the world. This was my team. I felt you know, an enormous sense of pride. And then along came the Asian crisis, and the number one ranked team in the world had the worst global forecast in the world, uh, largely because we had no idea what was happening uh, in Asia in the depths of this wrenching crisis. I was personally humiliated by that because uh, I just you know made a bunch of appearances where they were you know celebrating this extraordinary accomplishment of building this great global team, uh, and we looked foolish. So I, I the the one gut instinct I operated from at the time, this was right around uh, the summer of 1997, when you know all of Asia's uh, growth miracles were in tatters, was that China, I'd been to China a number of times, but didn't really know much about China. China would hold the key to the end game of the global uh, financial crisis. And so I started going to China every month in the second half of uh, 1997. It quickly became evident to me that China would not go the way of Thailand and Indonesia and South Korea, to say nothing of some of the smaller economies uh, in uh, the region. And uh, the, the more I dug into China, the more fascinated I became uh, with the way in which China operated uh, strategically, putting its large reservoir of savings to work, bringing some of the infrastructure demand forward to support economic growth. Uh, and you know, lo and behold, the crisis was over. China emerged as the new leader of the um, pan-Asian economy, the former leader of Japan was floundering. I wrote a number of articles in leading newspapers about this shift in the balance of economic power in the region. Uh, my friends in Japan never spoke to me again, uh, and my new friends in China were embarrassed uh, by what I was saying uh, about China. And I, I well, you know, a, a lot of sort of fortuitous events happened where I started participating in a number of high-level discussions and dialogues with senior Chinese leaders, and I, I got hooked. And then I came uh, back you know, from, from that period, uh, and a number of times I was called to testify in front of the U.S. Congress uh, on U.S.-China relations, especially dealing with trade issues uh, and the infamous currency issue. Uh, and it became evident to me in that, that, that exchange of views that um, while I was optimistic on China, 
the, the U.S. power structure did not get China. The, the view from the U.S. was um, that uh, China needs us uh, more than we need them, uh, and we can count on China to sell us cheap goods, uh, provide us with a new source of savings. We didn't have to save anymore. We could just uh, import surplus savings from China would be fine. And by the way, we could run big deficits because China would fund our deficits. And they had nowhere else to park their money. And so, you know, that, that led to an interesting uh, discourse between me and a number of members uh, of the Congress on these key issues. Uh, and I thought long and hard about the imbalance that I saw in the relationship between the United States and uh, China. And I framed it over time with the help of my wonderful wife, who is a, um, a psychologist, uh, in the psychological construct of codependency. If you know anything about uh, the pathology of codependency between uh, individuals, it's not a very healthy uh, uh, relationship for two people to participate in. They depend heavily on one another initially you know, because of love or in some cases convenience. Um, and they rely on each other too much to sustain uh, their sense of self. Ultimately their identities get blurred, uh, they don't know who they are, they start to turn on one another uh, and eventually the relationship uh, founders and, and sometimes <coughs> leads to a rather painful breakup. And I said, aha, that is the U.S. Uh, China. And so I started to uh, uh, think long and hard about this uh, and two and a half years ago uh, began uh, this book, this journey to really formalize the, uh, the relationship between these two, uh, what I believe are unbalanced economies, uh, struggling with their identities, their sense of self, uh, and uh, the relationship uh, between the two. And just a few slides to give you a sense of some of the, the thoughts that underpin uh, the, uh, the book. Uh, this first slide just shows you the very you know, obvious uh, contrast between a nation of consumers, us in America, uh, and a nation of producers, uh, the, the, the Chinese economy. Uh, we, as consumers, depend a lot on cheap goods uh, from China to stock our shelves at Walmart to make ends meet for hard-pressed American consumers whose real incomes have been stagnant uh, for uh, uh, two decades now. We don't save as a nation, so uh, we borrow freely uh, from the surplus uh, saver, the world's largest surplus saver, China. Uh, and in doing so, uh, China provides us with uh, what seems to be almost an insatiable demand uh, for U.S. Treasuries, which we need uh, because of our big budget deficits uh, and our inability to fund uh, our deficits ourselves. China, on the other hand, as you can see here, has a consumption share of its economy that's half the size of, of, of ours. Uh, dependent on exports and investment for economic growth, its major export market, uh, has long been, with the exception of a few years interrupted by Europe, uh, its major export markets in the United States. Uh, and so the dependency is a two-way street. We need them, they need us, uh, and yet 
both economies in marching down the road of this codependency have become uh, unstable. And to borrow the phraseology of former Premier Wen Jiabao, uh, unbalanced uh, and ultimately uh, unsustainable. So uh, the next China uh, for me is uh, sort of the first uh, step in this journey of breaking the shackles of codependence. And I will say, for those of you who are thinking of going back to college, I would urge you to apply to Yale, uh, where I, I've been teaching there now for four years. Uh, and I teach a course called uh, The Next China. Uh, and it, it's, it, it's really uh, been astonishing to me as to uh, the interest in, in the Yale community uh, in a course like this. Um, the, the first year I offered the course uh, four years ago, um, without any sort of, uh, even, even academia, they would call it marketing. No one knew about this course, no one knew about me. Uh, and um, 80, 80 kids took the class, and some of the you know, old seasoned Yale academics, you know, they were a little bit bent out of shape by that, because 80 is, is, is sort of unheard of for a new course, and they said to me, Look, there are a lot of people curious about you because you know you were one of these Wall Street characters, um, and um, you're borrowing your future enrollment. The enrollment will go down. You're willing to bet. The next year there were 130. Uh, the year after that there were 180. Uh, and last fall I, I just taught the course for 270 uh, students in Yale. There's a huge appetite to learn about uh, the Chinese economy. Not so much, you know. The history of China. Yale's had some wonderful people, Jonathan Spence and others, who have talked about the history of um, uh, modern China and even ancient China. But this is a forward-looking course that talks about the transformation to uh, from a producer model to a consumer model. Uh, and the story, as I tell it, there are, you know, three legs to the stool, really. Um, building out the services sector to promote a new source of job creation uh, for a China that's relied too heavily on manufacturing. Uh, raising real wages uh, with a powerful push to urbanization with urban workers uh, earning on average about three times their counterparts in the countryside. Uh, and then uh, uh, addressing the deep concerns over uh, financial security by funding and, and building out a social safety net in areas such as uh, retirement, uh, pensions, uh, Social Security, health care, unemployment insurance, uh, and the like. Uh, and if the model works, it transforms China from a surplus saver to a nation that begins to absorb uh, its surplus saving. Uh, and, and that changes uh, many of the rules of engagement between China uh, and the United States, because we need the surplus saver to keep providing us uh, with the savings that we don't do at home uh, and the treasuries that we cannot buy uh, because of that. The, um, the debate was started on, on this transformation uh, in earnest about seven years ago with this statement by former Premier Wen Jiabao. Uh, it was formalized when the 12th five-year plan uh, was put together and enacted in March of 2011. But that was, in retrospect, a framework rather than a, a blueprint for action. And now we have the uh, 
60 reforms uh, that have come out of the third plenum of uh, the 18th Party Congress that was held in November of last year, which I will admit postdates uh, the book uh, as it was written, uh, but really reinforces so many of the key conclusions in the book. And China's on its way. And so China is rebalancing. And back to the codependency framework, we, the nation dependent on China, we got to take that for a given and figure out what that means for our economy, uh, for our uh, economic strategy. And sure, China, because of its large population, is going to overtake the U.S. A chart like this shows you, you know, my estimates in the book, 2027. I've seen some more take, you know, that, that uh, occurs a good deal sooner. What about the next America, the other side of the coin here? Um, the theme of the book on balance. Uh, is the action it applies. You can address the, the problems that emerge uh, from the codependency of two unbalanced economies only by rebalancing. China's rebalancing, uh, and it's not clear to me that we are uh, in the United States. We're trying to resurrect our old growth model, the consumer-led growth model. I mean, look at, you know, you know we, we just had a transition uh, at the head of the Fed, and we celebrated the genius of uh, Ben Bernanke. Um, you know, he's a great public servant and certainly did his very best to deal with a, a, a horrific crisis that occurred on his watch, uh, a crisis I would add parenthetically that he also had you know, a great deal of responsibility for creating, but this is not uh, you know, the time to be critical of a man who's uh, performed such a great act of public service. But the policies he's adopted, quantitative easing, which seem likely to be the policies that uh, will still shape uh, the Fed for a, a, a good deal of time uh, under Janet Yellen, uh, are designed to stimulate consumer demand through wealth effects, you know, giving big increases to uh, equity markets uh, and uh, other financial asset values, uh, including homes. And that's a consumer-led mindset that we just don't seem to be getting away from. I believe, as this chart illustrates uh, America suffered such a severe shortfall of national savings that the imperative for us is not to consume more, especially when we don't make as much as we used to, uh, but to really uh, rekindle uh, something we've lost, and that is to save more. Not immediately, because saving, of course, uh, will um, uh, impede the growth of aggregate demand. You don't want that in a weak recovery, but we've got to talk uh, about the, the incentives and the imperatives of saving and, and how we need to reinvest that savings uh, in capital spending, uh, on infrastructure, manufacturing capacity, uh, and of course our, um, our people investing in human capital. And in doing that, uh, we've got to develop uh, a competitiveness agenda uh, in the United States that will enable us uh, to uh, turn more to exports rather than the excesses of internal private consumption to sustain economic growth. And China, uh, with its um, uh, transformation uh, and, and with its history of being our third largest and most rapidly growing large export market, uh, is a great opportunity for us. So the rebalancing implied by unbalance uh, is, is really, if, if viewed strategically by the United States, uh, is an enormous opportunity for us to discover uh, a new recipe for uh, uh, economic growth. 
Um, both leaders uh, dream a lot. You know, the China dream, of course, is a, you know a, a big uh, uh, campaign of uh, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, and it's got deep historical roots. It's got social roots. It's got economic roots. Um, and it, it, it's got some risks associated with it as well, given the tensions that have emerged in the uh, East China Sea, but also the South China Sea. Uh, and uh, critical to uh, the China dream uh, is to push the envelope on uh, economic and financial reforms. Uh, and you know, I note with great interest that you know the uh, the third plan not didn't just contain 60 reform. Uh, proposals, but also contain a new implementation mechanism, uh, this leading committee on the deepening of economic reforms to really push ahead and implement uh, some of the Chinese reforms that have really uh, been uh, tough to implement in, in recent years. And this is headed up, of course, by uh, Xi Jinping as well. Um, America, you know, what does our balancing look like? Not much on the economic front. Uh, certainly, post uh, 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 wars in the Middle East and uh, Afghanistan. We're talking about our own geostrategic rebalancing, the so-called pivot to Asia. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the two dreams uh, can either work together or they can work uh, in, a, in a distant way. And it's, I think it's important for both nations uh, to address uh, their, their national aspirations. Uh, from the standpoint of, um, uh, of both economics, uh, security, uh, and social implications. I'm an optimist on China. Uh, I raised a number of questions about the United States. I'm inherently an optimist about the United States as well. Uh, things have not gone that well for us uh, in the last decade. This should be our wake-up call. Uh, I'm not sure that that has sunk in uh, to the power structure uh, in Washington, uh, and that's why I wrote the book. So I'll stop on that note and be delighted to take uh, questions from you, Steve, or from anyone in the room. Want to stay standing? Sure. <coughs> first, first, take the water. First question, you know, the Chinese are diversifying or increasing their exposure to hard assets, and some of that is flowing to the United States in the form of investment. You know, what's become a, tr a trickle has now become a stream and may become a flood in the coming years. How does that affect the, the rebalancing? Going global is a big deal for Chinese companies. Um, I think, um, you know, we've certainly seen, as you say it um, correctly, uh, a growing interest in expanding the reach. Um, there are obviously some real political considerations in this country with uh, how far uh, the, the administration and the power structure is willing to let it go. It's still, it's a very sensitive issue. And so the Shuang uh, Kui Smithfield uh, transaction went through, but I know very well that that was not the slam dunk you would think it would be. Uh, uh, given the fact that this has to deal with food as opposed to anything of a high technology uh, content. Uh, Lenovo, Motorola, who knows how that goes. Uh, and there's been a lot of uh, uh, 
uh, sort of fractious uh, issues in the past uh, regarding whether it's Huawei uh, or um, uh, you know the energy front with the CNOC and, and Unical. Uh, there's still a, a lot of concern uh, in the United States about um, the free flow of capital from nations like China and what they're going to do with American assets uh, should they uh, choose to venture uh, in, into this area. Uh, I think that the, the, the Chinese will be judicious in moving. I don't see the, you know, the stream turning into a raging torrent. I think they're very cautious in light of some of the misadventures that have occurred uh, in, the, in the recent past and they'll pick their spots pretty carefully. But what will my question? I think, by the way, that we will be we will remain open to investment. I think that the concerns in Washington will actually be overridden by local governments and state governments well, right. really wanting that investment. That there's a real divergence in view between kind of within the Beltway and and everywhere else in the country. But my question was more: if this were to occur, in other words, they're, they're talking about. I think the Chinese are talking about investing a trillion <coughs> offshore in the coming few years, which would only be would be less than a third of their of their accumulated reserves. What's the does that have an effect on the rebalancing? Well, I think for them to say if they were to shift their uh, the mix of their uh, foreign exchange reserves um, out of treasuries. <coughs> Uh, put it this way, and, and just forget for a second the, the FDI implication that any ship, that has implications for the, the currency. And so I think part of this rebalancing to a domestic economy would actually be very consistent with a further significant a appreciation of uh, their MMB. And for them to um, uh, be willing to accept the consequences uh, of a shift out of treasuries uh, into other types of whether it's hard assets or even other currency should they choose to make a, a bet in that direction, uh, they would have to make a judgment as to whether or not that fits with their consumer-led rebalancing. And a stronger currency, I think, is quite consistent uh, with a consumer-led rebalancing because it gives domestic Chinese more purchasing power to buy overseas goods. So I, I, I don't find this at odds with the structural changes that I see occurring uh, in um, uh, the Chinese economy. But I'm still, you know, I know they've said, they've thrown out the number like a trillion. I think um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a overly optimistic assessment of what they're likely to achieve in the next few years. I mean, they're, they're going in that direction, but uh, I don't think it will be that quick. Over the last decade, or last 15 years, about 40% of our trade deficit has been a result of energy imports. When we look forward, you know, by 2020, that's going to have virtually disappeared, which would start creating a better balance for the United States. China is on the opposite trajectory. Its energy, its requirements for imported energy are growing astronomically. How does that fit into kind of the Look, it's a great question. I, I said this on TV one, uh, recently, and I'll say it again. You know, 
we're not going to frack our way into prosperity. We've got to do more than, you know, just discover, uh, you know, a new technology to uncover uh, uh, shale oil. Fracking is a capital-intensive um, initiative. It's very powerful. It's important for us, uh, but you know, it barely makes a dent uh, in the job problem that we have in the United States. Um, China's got a serious energy problem, uh, but the old model is you know, a manufacturing model uh, that relies uh, hugely on a disproportionate um, uh, share of global consumption of natural resources uh, and uh, energy. The transition from manufacturing to services, which is an essential ingredient uh, of the new model, uh, I think will be very helpful to China. And I would just point out that last year, Steve, the services sector, the tertiary sector, uh, was actually larger for the first time in modern China's history than the secondary sector, which is manufacturing uh, and construction. So, and services, of course, have you know a de minimis footprint in terms of uh, energy consumption. So, I, I think, and then China is, of course, aggressive in alternative sources of uh, fuel, uh, but and they're growing rapidly, but it's all a very small base, and it's still a heavily coal centric, carbon intensive. Uh, energy structure, and uh, it, it's not clear to me that they're going to make any immediate progress uh, in that regard, and that's very problematic, not so much for growth, but for uh, environmental uh, uh, degradation issues. Do you think you talk about this transition to a service, to serve, to a service economy in China, which they, in the past year, they went over 50%. And in the book, you talk about the opportunities that that creates for U.S. business. Can you talk specifically what those opportunities are and also comment on whether you think the U.S. business community gets it, understands that opportunity? Well, financial services where you know, I spent most of my life and certainly gets it. I mean, they've been all over uh, Chinese regulators to um, uh, create beachheads in, in China. My former company, Morgan Stanley, of course, was the first to really crack the um, um, the marketplace in uh, uh, building what is now really a, a world-class investment banking franchise in China, CICC, with 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 a partner at the China Construction Bank. Um, Non-financial services, though, I think ultimately are going to be vital and, and more important uh, than <coughs> financial services. I could never say that when I was working at Morgan Stanley, but now I, you know, I'm sort of freed of my you know, former uh, code. I can actually um, uh, uh, you know, make, I think, a very powerful argument that um, you look at the, some of the sectors in the distribution area, wholesale trade, retail trade, domestic transportation, supply chain logistics, they're minuscule compared to an economy uh, the size of China. They've got to grow and they've got to grow rapidly. And China has very little in the way of indigenous uh, expertise in, in figuring out how to build uh, uh, transactions intensive distribution industries like that. Healthcare, I mean, this is an enormous opportunity uh, in China, um, especially given the high speed aging courtesy of the one child. Um, uh, family planning policy in um, uh, China. Uh, and even in financial services, just, just the processing function, 
and you know, you, you know from your own experience, um, so much of the financial services in China, <coughs> asset management in particular, is woefully uh, underdeveloped. So there's a lot that can be done in services. We in the United States is the, the clearly the world's quintessential service services uh, providing producing uh, economy. Um, I think we have a great opportunity to to, to be aggressive uh, in pushing ahead and, and opening up these domestic services uh, industries, not just in finance but in uh, the non-financial area. And there's a whole piece of the book that goes through and tries to make some estimates on the growth of the Chinese services sector between now and 2025, how much of that is tradable, how much of that is open to countries like the United States. Um, and again, that's the opportunity. Shame on us if we don't seize it. Let me ask one last question, and then I'm going to open it to the floor for questions. You know, one of the great parts of this book is kind of the, the uh, talks about myths and kind of pokes holes in the myths. And very direct in, in terms of, doesn't you come out very clearly on the issues. And one of the parts that I, I liked was, um, um, you know, he asked, does corruption have the ability to bring the economy down? And one would probably, you know, kind of give some hedging in the answer. First word of the, of the answer, no. And then goes on. Now, I read that and I said, well, probably right. However, I can think about early in my career when I was working with um, South, some Southeast Asian countries and their Ministry of Finance explained to me, you don't get corruption, you don't understand. It's, it's just the, it's the grease for the wheels to move. So it's really, it's like a value added tax. It's 3%, it's 4%. We keep moving ahead. Then what happened? was it wasn't 3 or 4%, it moved to 30 or 40%, and you had such misallocation of resources as a result. So you built the bridge, not because you needed the bridge, you built the bridge for the corruption that you could get out of the bridge. You built an auto factory, not because you needed a new auto factory, because the children of the president could build, could have the monopoly on that. And that caused the economy to collapse. So is there that threat? So when I think back to that 30, you know, almost 30 years ago now, and I think about China, is there that threat that you're going to get misallocation of resources driven by corruption, which actually causes enormous difficulty in the economy? And secondly, do you have issues where corruption has created um, situations like the housing is built not to standard and it collapses in an earthquake, or a high-speed rail system because of money that's diverted to corruption isn't functioning properly. So you have enormous economic and social costs. Wow, those are really <laughs> Better, you know, I'm drinking water here. I said, I need to go to the stronger stuff. Um, we have some wine in the back. No, that's not going to be strong enough to deal with that. <laughs> we didn't say this would be easy, Steve. Chinese tequila. Uh, I, I think that um, corruption is, you know, a, ultimately a major constraint for a nation, any nation. Uh, and certainly the 
corruption with Chinese characteristics, to borrow a, a, an overworked phrase, is, is, is an issue. Uh, and potentially a serious one. To his credit, um, Xi Jinping certainly has been quick off the blocks as a, as a new leader to uh, attempt to tackle uh, this, this issue. And in speech after speech, he talks about the tigers and the flies. The tigers are the big guys. He's already taken down an unprecedented number of senior officials, uh, former and current in, in, in the government, heads of SOEs, uh, and you know the, the, I, I kept a list from a running list for my last class, got up to about 15, which is you know a significant uh, number. It's probably now closer to 20. The real issue is the flies, though. The, 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 the corrupt officials. Uh, at the local level that really build these deeply entrenched power blocks uh, between um, the party at the local level uh, and um, SOE leadership uh, at the local level as well, and certainly involves the allocation of credit uh, of, a, uh, of a very dispersed uh, banking system uh, as, as well. And that's just going to be a much, much tougher issue uh, to, to address. Uh, the, the good news is that uh, the one member of the standing committee who I really know the, the best, and any Wall Street guy will tell you that he's good friends with Wang Shishan, uh, is sort of cut out of the Jumanji, no-nonsense, tough, strategic thinker and cloth. And as the, uh, uh, the chairman of the Discipline Commission, he is ultimately empowered with dealing uh, with the flies. And um, I, I can't say I'm confident that he's got the program that will do it, but I, I know firsthand that there's a number of initiatives underway that, that, that he is considering uh, pushing out that, that will make an effort in this regard. And the final thing I'd say about, well, I'll say two other things about uh, corruption. Um, the resource misallocation issue, I think, you know, there's certainly examples of some of that in, in China. But in large part, it's, it, it, it's a myth. Uh, I go around the country all the time debating uh, my good friend uh, Jim Chanos, who talks about ghost cities and um, bridges to nowhere and you know, investment shares of GDP at 50% and, and, and rising. And what Jim misses, other than the fact he's never been to China, is that um, uh, the urbanization uh, creates an enormous source of natural demand for expansion of infrastructure that has another 20 years to run. There are certainly some bridges to nowhere, but there are at least, according to McKinsey, 100 new cities uh, with a minimum population of a million that need to be constructed between now uh, and 2025, uh, 2030. And so the investment uh, required to do that is going to require a lot of bridges, a lot of airports, a lot of highways, a, a lot of buildings. Some of them will not be up to code. We saw that with the tragic uh, earthquake, um, you know, that um, resulted in uh, so many you know, awful deaths, especially of primary school children uh, in Beijing Village in, in, in 2008. I've seen the ruins of that uh, firsthand. It's just 
it's just haunting uh, to see. Um, but but I, I think um, you know that is um, uh, really being exaggerated uh, as a symptom of a corrupt society. And the final final thing I'll say on this is again the core premise of this book from the Chinese side is the producer model is going to become a consumer model. Uh, and a consumer society places different demands uh, on its leadership and on the accountability of the leadership uh, to deliver a system that's compatible with the aspirational values uh, of, uh, of individuals. And so by setting in motion this rebalancing, uh, this is an enormous gambit for an authoritarian one-party state uh, to take. And yet they're taking uh, and, and I think ultimately this will be um, both a challenge and an enormous opportunity uh, for a more enlightened model of leadership uh, and political accountability uh, in China that will be forced to address this corruption issue more effectively than has been the case under the old model for the last 30 years. Yes, way too many questions. Please let, please let the audience start back here. Please um, identify. Do we speak loudly? We don't okay, have okay, mics. Okay. So Bill Snow from CICC, the investment bank we just met. <coughs> and uh, yes, now we expand to new work, not just the business arm, also research arm. I'm an economist. So I'm going to bring this question you're to the, you. You're an economist? Yeah. Oh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel that too. <laughs> Yeah, but actually, I think I haven't heard. Uh, uh, like you probably have been asked a couple of times about this one, about the future Chinese growth path, and apparently now it's a very uh, debatable question. One side of the story is because of the uh, shrinking demographic dividend, so China will inevitably fall to a five percent or four percent growth in the next ten years, and also have some others saying that because China have the so-called the uh, backstart advantage and uh, all the reform dividend, so China probably going to maintain 8% or 10% for the next 20 years. So uh, my simple question is, what do you think about that? Yeah, the growth debate is uh, <coughs> a huge issue in markets around the world. China did 30 years of 10% growth, <coughs> and now it looks like it's moved into a 7 8% growth channel. And uh, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing over the fact that you're seeing a 25% deceleration in the growth rate. I think this is a superficial analysis. What matters is not the quantity, but the quality of economic growth. I will take 7% growth from China any day if it's more balanced, if it's less resource, less energy intensive, if it's more labor intensive uh, as services are. You don't need 10% growth if you can absorb the same amount of surplus labor with seven, the math suggests uh, that you can. So I welcome the slowdown to um, seven, seven and a half percent growth. I don't think it's a, um, a sign that China is um, uh, moving down uh, to a, a, a much weaker growth trajectory that threatens uh, to um, uh, threatens the demise of the, the Chinese development miracle. A lot of people ask me, uh, they say, what about the middle income trap? You know, you guys know what the middle income trap is? You know, uh, developing economies usually, as you said, they pick the low-hanging fruits and reform. 
they grow a lot. They take their income from impoverished levels up to, you know, $10,000 a year, and then they stall out. And most of them do. Very few of them have gone through it. You look at the ones that stall out, why do they do it? They stick with the old model. The model will take them from nowhere to 10,000. They think it will take them from 10 to 20, and it doesn't. You've got to change the model. And so China, by changing the model, uh, stands a much better chance of avoiding the middle income trap than, than, than others. So I, I think this idea that uh, China's in the early stages of a major protracted slowdown uh, of economic growth that will lead to an outbreak of social instability, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie script. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. Frank. First of all, uh, Professor Roach, I want to thank you for doing what you've done over the years because you've been my defense in the face of so many critics, starting from Chuck Schumer on down to various uh, economists about what's wrong with China. And I say, rebroach, rebroach. So you've been enormously helpful in my business. I've read your book. I have the advantage of uh, having gone through half of it, unlike most of the folks in the audience, I think. And I want to bring up the other side of the equation, the American side, and its problems of unbalance. And I think I detect that there is a blind spot. You refer to the elephant in the room as something else. I won't even refer to it, not distract us. To me, the elephant in the room on the American side is the enormous amount of money that we as a nation put into national defense. We, depending on who you look at, uh, equal in our defense budget the next 15 nations combined, or the whole world combined, number one. Um, every county in the United States has some national defense income source. <clears throat> All of those income sources tend not to be productive. They tend not to do anything, to go anywhere, to enhance the overall economy. So you mentioned that the United States is a hegemon. You use that word. Um, and on the other hand, that it is the beneficiary of the savings of, was it Tennessee Williams or somebody else who said the, the benefit of uh, I, kindness of strangers. The kindness of strangers, that's right. The and it was Tennessee Williams. But I would guess that it's not so much the kindness of strangers, but the fact that the United States covers the world as the world's policemen, but just focusing on the economics. This is our big, big, big economic investment that doesn't help us, doesn't save, okay. doesn't deal with the, deb the debit, the debt. What do you think? Um, that <coughs> you know that that's a long, tough, important question. It's. <coughs> one that gets debated constantly by political scientists, economists, 
uh, and by our leadership uh, in, in Washington. My answer, though, is take a look at this chart. You know, I, I'm sort of um, fixated on the lack of saving in the United States. When you don't save as a nation, things that you think you can afford ultimately are not affordable. We have voted with our feet as a body politic to build uh, the greatest army, spend more than you know whatever the rest of the world on military, uh, to police the world, to fight a number of wars. Uh, you, you can, in terms of saying it doesn't um, have any economic payback, that's that's debatable. Um, it's hard, hard to quantify. But the, the bottom line is by committing to massive uh, uh, military power projection and capabilities and not saving to fund them, that puts us in a very precarious state in terms of being able to sustain our economic growth. And so the, the budget deficit, the shortfall of household saving, from my point of view, needs to be looked at, not just in the context of affording uh, defense, but affording a number of other things that we've taken on as a nation. Uh, and I, I'm critical of, uh, I wrote an op-ed piece um, after the uh, third plenum, where I talked in, in, in the New York Times, where I talked about uh, the differences between the US and China, and I said, you know, Americans, we, we go about doing things differently than Chinese. China, you know, they hold, they have these Soviet-style five-year plans, third plans where they all get together every five years and really talk about strategy. We don't really have a strategic debate and a framework to look at our issues. And so I ended the piece with, uh, with something like, you know, maybe we need a third plenum moment in America. And if you could have seen the hate mail that came into my inbox <laughs> after that, I mean, it was, it was not pretty. So look, I take your point. I don't, I don't really want to venture into the realm of arguing we should unwind our military capability. I just want to point out the consequences of having those commitments to the military, consequences of having a commitment to uh, an inefficient healthcare system in a framework like this. It's a much more serious problem would be the case if we say more. No, over here. Professor, would, would you, regarding expenditure, regarding savings, I'm sorry, uh, Ben Moore, architect, re regarding savings, um, you know, you hear the typical, that a number of American families are underwater. Would you be willing to undertake in your class assigning some students to look at the typical American family budget, let's say, and decide what items might be snipped. I mean, I've walked around China. There clearly are families who are spending less than some American ones. But how, how does one go about deciding who should save, where they should put it? It's a dumb question, maybe, but... No, it's not a dumb question, uh, but, but it is, um, <clears throat> it's definitely part of the, <clears throat> the, the debate over savings that needs to uh, occur. I, I've been on this horse for a long time. And whenever I raise it, 
uh, I get attacked. Uh, and I won't, I won't, I don't want to make this personal, but the, the guy who attacks me the most, um, sure remain anonymous, but, but he, he has a beard and he writes a column in the New York Times on Monday to Friday. Um, and he says, forget savings. We don't need to save. Because when a nation saves, the mirror image of saving is you put aside um, your spending uh, to, to save. And so a, a weak recovery needs spending, not saving. And, and so that muzzles uh, the debate. Uh, I, I think that's hugely uh, incorrect and counterproductive. Again, my view on saving is that it need not occur today. But we need to have a debate over the incentives that need to be put in place uh, to provide longer-term incentives uh, for saving, especially if our largest source of surplus savings from abroad is going to start absorbing that surplus to fund its own economy. And what do I mean specifically? Um, I give President Obama a lot of credit the State of Union address of proposing new savings vehicles for low- and middle-income Americans. They don't have any. Uh, we can expand existing IRA uh, and 401k plans. We can um, uh, make, um, uh, uh, on your tax refunds, uh, an automatic checkoff to deposit the refund uh, in the savings accounts. Uh, and, and by the way, the Federal Reserve, with running zero interest rate uh, monetary policy for as far as the eye can see, is, is ex exacting a huge penalty on, on savings. Normalizing interest rates would, would go um, a big step uh, in, in that direction. There's a number of things we need to discuss uh, to be able to fund our future consumption, not our current consumption. And so the, the, the voice that shouts down saving because we need to consume today is, runs the risk of squandering our ability to support consumption of the future. These are fascinating questions. We should probably try to focus on the China portion be a lot of, of, of the unbalanced because um, we are the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. <laughs> right there, yeah. The, uh, and then the man next to you. Yeah. How can, let's say, how can the U.S. compete with China when, let's say, Barack Obama um, wants to have passed clean legislation, it said, for um, to increase the, the um, no, I'm sorry, he said that he would have a clean debt limit, which no one understands what that means, with no conditions attached. And it seems like the government can borrow unlimited. Yeah, well, what I'm trying to do is focus in on yeah, China, though, because we have a, one of the great experts on China's economy. We can, we can have a separate one on what the U.S. needs to do. No, but I'm gonna, I'm Okay, but then make it brief because we got six hands. Go ahead. For example, and then, for example, if you want to go, if you shop at a store, everything is made in China. They make phenomenal things very at a discount. Go to like Forever 21, um, go to H&M, uh, which are packed, made in China. So uh, my question is, how can the U.S. compete with China? So it's not a question of us beating China. It's a question of us... <coughs> learning how to improve our economy and China improving its economy. Um, I don't view this as many, uh, and as your question implies, as a race 
between us or a competitive battle between us. It's something that we have to do, and I say this very clearly uh, in the book, it's, it's again back to the psycho theme, uh, it's, a, it's a treatise in self-improvement. We have to get better as a nation in running our economy, and the Chinese do too. Nick. What are the factors standing in the way of China achieving its rebalancing strategy? There, there are a lot. The, 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 the two that I would just highlight, one we've already talked, talked about, um, inertia due to corruption and an unwillingness to dislodge entrenched power blocks. That's number one. Number two, um, and this was a puzzle to me for a long time, the unwillingness to fund the social safety net uh, to um, address uh, some of the, um, the, the, the issues that kept household savings uh, far too high. I was hugely critical uh, in many of my speeches inside of China on that. Had direct discussions with senior Chinese leadership on this for a number of years. And the third plan by addressing uh, the one-child policy, hukou reform, interest rate liberalization, and putting taxes on SOEs to fund the safety net uh, is a real affirmative answer to, to that. There are a number of other things that can go wrong, but those would be the two I would highlight. Yes. Yeah, um, you talk about... Lowry. You talk about uh, helping the U.S. economy by increasing the savings rate. U.S. corporations are sitting on record amounts of cash, with trillions of dollars of cash. And how about helping the U.S. economy with more investments? Uh, again, I, I want to be sensitive to Steve's point, but I'll just be very brief. Companies have a lot of cash. They don't spend it on investment. They don't spend it on people if their demand is expectations are weak. And that goes back to the American consumer. The American consumer is still on his or her back uh, has been so in an unprecedented way for the last six years. Uh, and despite what all you, you hear from these optimists, the consumer is still uh, in serious trouble. And companies are not going to put their money to work until that consumer demand uh, story is fixed. Get in the back there. Um, there is an impression that uh, multinational corporations, including those from the US, are faring less well in China than they did, uh, say, a decade or two decades before. And that's because they're not only facing stiffer comp competition, but also, also less friendly Beijing. Uh, for example, we're seeing Pfizer, GSK, Apple getting punished or sometimes harassed by various kinds of, uh, because of bribery <coughs> or other cases, that their local players are also doing the same. How do you make of Beijing's mindset behind this? And how would you think uh, China's, uh, uh, China's, China's place as a destination for foreign investment would change because of this change attitudes towards foreign investment. Who are you? Uh, I'm Swing from the uh, VFT, uh, the Financial Times. Yeah, it's a great newspaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great question. Uh, I'd say a couple things. Number one, <coughs> A lot of multinationals, US-based, are whiners. They're complaining. <laughs> They're making a lot of money, uh, and um, 
you know, they're, they're still uh, raising issues that I think um, are not consistent with the commitment they made to China. Number two, um, I don't see any let up in FDI in China. China's still uh, next to the U.S., the largest recipient of FDI of, of any country in the world. Number three, uh, I'm hugely in favor of pushing ahead uh, on a bilateral investment treaty, U.S. and China, where I think there is now grounds for um, legitimate optimism after uh, uh, not being that way since the uh, strategic and economic dialogue of, of last July. This, this will address head-on some of the thorny issues of market access, which seem to be of, uh, of uh, growing concern to U.S., European, and other multinationals. Uh, I don't get, you know, I, I don't subscribe to the notion that Beijing has just decided to make life uncomfortable uh, for um, multinationals and, and FDI inflows into China when this has been a critical piece of the growth recipe that has worked so well for 30 years. Last question for the far left. Um, Speak loudly and identify yourself. Okay, Hanshaw from Forbes. Or on the record, would you be able to offer some more details on the initiatives that Multishan is considering pushing out? Um, if not, um, then what additional measures do you think the leadership should be taking that would be possible for them to take at tackling corruption given the current hurdles they're facing? I'll give you his personal cell phone number. You can call him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think one issue that's been discussed publicly, which I can. Uh, allude to would be um, <clears throat> broadening out the disclosure requirements for uh, local officials. What do they own? What are the potential conflicts of interest between what they do in their day jobs and what their portfolios look like? I think disclosure is a very important first step uh, toward making governance more transparent uh, and addressing um, uh, uh, some of the corruption that results from that. Wang Shishan, uh, I believe, is very much in favor of that. And we'll have to wait and see. It's up to watch.